Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and to be able to open God's Word. Uh, my name is Greg Marshall, and I am the new youth pastor here, and I'm excited to be here. I uh, get a chance to uh, work with uh, the teens here at, at the church and in this community. Uh, like Eric said, my wife is not here with me yet. Uh, she wants to be, longs to be, but she's still back in Lexington, South Carolina with four small children, trying to uh, homeschool them and keep a house clean to uh, show it trying to sell the house, so um, we'd appreciate your prayers there. Uh, we're actually uh, talking to a couple right now who wants to buy it, and so if you've ever sold a house, you know that uh, that is not the fun part where you have to barter and bargain back and forth and trade different things, so we're in the middle of that right now. So uh, if, you, if you can uh, reach a Bible and you want to open, go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 8. With Easter coming uh, in just a few short weeks, uh, largely I just wanted to point us to the cross. I want to remind us of Jesus Christ, uh, the fact that he came to live a perfect and righteous life. He uh, came to die on the cross to pay for our sins, and so we celebrate that uh, this season as Easter approaches. Um, so I wanted to look at uh, John chapter 8 and one verse uh, this afternoon, but we'll be moving in and, in and out of a, a few other verses as well. So John chapter 8. Verse 12, Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Father in heaven, we pray this afternoon again for your enlightenment. We pray for the light of Christ to shine in our hearts and lives, that we might be brought from darkness of thinking, darkness of hearts, uh, to the newness of life that can only come as Jesus Christ comes and shines his truth into our lives. And we pray for that uh, this afternoon. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced uh, coming, into, um, coming into a dark room for the first time. Maybe it's at your house. Maybe you go upstairs into the attic. Um, and your eyes take a while to adjust to the lack of light. Uh, as you bump around and stumble around trying to find the light switch in a bedroom or uh, trying to move around looking for, for something, some source of light to give illumination to your path. Uh, back in college, uh, a friend of mine was an avid spelunker, which is just a very fancy name for crawling around in the mud in caves. Um, and he took a spelunking or caving one time, and uh, we had headlamps on to be able to shine into these caves, and he took us further and further back in. So he took us to this cavernous room uh, that just beautifully, amazingly uh, had been carved out over time. And, and he told us to sit down, and he told us uh, he was going to talk to us a little bit about, uh, about Christ and about his faith. And then at one point he said, all right, I want all of you on the count of three to turn off your lamps. Um, and he said, all right, one, two, three. And we all clicked off our headlamps, and it was the most total, complete uh, darkness that you've ever experience. The, normally when you walk into a room and it's dark, the ambient light, the other light sources, you, you begin to be able to perceive and, and sense depth and see things around you, but there was no outside light source here. And so the darkness, the, the depth of the blackness was so overwhelming that it was almost, uh, it was almost frightening. Um, there's a passage in scripture in, in uh, Exodus 10 where Moses is describing the 10th plague when he calls it a, a darkness that can be felt. 
If you've ever experienced darkness that is so total, it almost feels like you're being draped by a, a, a blanket of darkness. That It almost is like something that you can reach out and touch. Um, and we stumbled around for a while trying to find each other, and he played tricks on us in the dark. And finally he told us to turn on our headlamps again. And the, the sensation and, uh, of, of going from light to, to the darkness was so overwhelming um, but to go from darkness to light was painful. It hurt the eyes. It was blinding, in a sense, how, how, hurt, uh, how much it hurt the eyes. But then, as our eyes began to adjust, it was almost refreshing and comforting uh, to go from no light to the piercing light that is all around you. And then it began to provide that comfort and stability. There's a very real sense where um, when we are born into this world, we are born into that same kind of darkness, that same kind of lack of light in our lives. Um, and so the question that I want to ask this morning is, are you walking in darkness or are you walking this day in light? And I don't ask that as just a trivial question. I think we throw around that phrase, are you walking in the light, a little too casually sometimes. I mean, are you seeking after the Lord and asking him to shine the light of truth in your life every day in such a way that you want him to, to show you the depth of your sin? You long to have it rooted out of your life, and the only thing that can do that is the light of God's truth. So are you longing this day? Are you prayerfully seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, though it may be uh, painful, I long for your light of truth to shine into the crevices and crannies of my life, root out the sin that is so deep in there. And the only thing that can do that is the light. And I think we find as God does this that it is piercing and it is painful at first, but eventually it brings that comfort and that refreshing that only God can bring. So I, I want to ask again, are you walking in darkness today? Or are you actively seeking, longing for God's truth to shine into your life? The passage that we're looking at today, very briefly, John 8, uh, is one of those phrases, one of those uh, um, sayings of Jesus that we know, that we've heard over and over again. But if we take it out of its context, we lose the, the true meaning of it. Um, the, the chapters that are leading up to this, 6, 7, and 8, and even 9 after it, provide a wonderful context as this metaphor of light and darkness is used here in John, but really throughout Scripture. Uh, God loves to paint pictures for us. He loves to paint pictures for us, and, and John does as well. Um, but the metaphor of light and darkness is all over Scripture. Um, Genesis chapter 1, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And I can go on and on with passages that deal with the this metaphor, this imagery that we walk in this world in darkness. We're born in darkness and that we need an outside light source to, to enliven us, to illuminate our minds, to, to show us the darkness that we live in. We see it uh, in society as well. If you, if you have children or maybe you yourself have seen any of the Star Wars movies, the whole idea of the, the dark side of the force and the light side of the force. Uh, we see the, the yin-yang symbol uh, uh, posted all over the place in our nation comes from Eastern mysticism and religion, that idea that there is a war between 
uh, good and evil, between light and dark. Um, and even in our in our day to day speaking, we say that uh, if we're if we're mistaken, oh, you're just you're in the dark on that. Uh, or if we if we know what we're talking about, well, you must be enlightened. So this idea of darkness and light it surrounds us, and it's all throughout the scripture. But like I said, John chapter eight, this verse twelve is is easy to remember. It's one of the the sayings um, that uh, that Christ said. But we need to understand the context for it. Um, as Jesus was speaking, uh, something had gone on or was going on called the Festival of the Tabernacles. Um, he was there. He was a Jewish man. And so he would have been knowledgeable of, respectful of, participating in Jewish uh, traditions. And so the Jewish people observed for eight days in the seventh month of their calendar um, this Jewish uh, Festival of the Tabernacles. Uh, and it was a time of, of joyful thanksgiving uh, for the harvest. It was also a celebration as they looked back into their history of how God had cared for their ancestors uh, during the years of wandering in the wilderness after they had uh, fled from Egypt. Um, and during this week, the, the priests, uh, again, would, would do very many things that Christ would take and use as pictures to point them to him. Uh, during this week, the priests would carry water from the pool of Siloam uh, and pour it out on the west side of one of the altars. And it was to remind the people, the priests were trying to remind the people of how God had provided for their ancestors water in the wilderness. So the Jewish priests were pointing the people back into their history to, re- to say, remember how good our God is. Remember the things that he's done. He provided for us while we were wandering. Psalm 114 uh, highlights this and says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the the rock into a pool of water, uh, the flint into a spring of water. They would have known their history. They would have been called to remember that God was a God who provided. God was a a God who provided. But God is also a God of pictures. And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to paint these word pictures for them to say that just as God provided water for your ancestors, so I too, the water of life, am here to quench your thirst, your spiritual thirst. There was a movie that came out uh, a few years ago called 127 Hours. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's a, it's a fairly graphic movie because uh, a young man uh, named Aaron Wal- Ralston uh, was, uh, was a, a rock climber, and he was out climbing alone, um, in the Utah desert, and at some point he fell into this uh, um, into this little canyon of uh, between two rocks. And as he's falling, he dislodges some boulders that were on the side. And, as, and he's falling as he's sliding down. He hits the ground finally, and a boulder that he had dislodged falls and pins his arm between the rock wall and another rock. So the story, this is a true story, but the story is about his 127 hours of trying to survive, trying to free himself. Um, And it's very graphic because he ends up having to to cut off his own arm to free himself. But there's a scene after he does this where he's stumbling around, and it's been 127 hours. He is parched. He is thirsty. He hasn't had anything to eat. So he sees down below as he's wandering around with a tourniquet on his arm, he stumbles and he sees this brackish pool of water down below him. It is a filthy, nasty pool of water. 
But you see the thirst and the desperation of this man as he runs and he throws himself headlong into this water, drinking it down. And, and we look at it and we say, that is vile and that's disgusting. But for a man who hasn't had hardly anything to drink for, for days, this is life-giving. This is nourishing. And I wonder if there are times where we, in our spiritual state of thirst, run to the pools of brackish water that the world offers instead of running to the clean purity of Christ. How we run and, and we will drink in anything because we're so desperate, even if it's filthy and decaying and rotten, when Christ offers the rich, clear fount of his love. Are you thirsty this morning? Maybe not after that illustration. But are you thirsty this morning? Are you longing in your heart for, for the love of Christ? And maybe you don't label it as that. You long for life, for purpose, for meaning, for forgiveness. So this day Christ is saying, come to me, I'm the fount. I'm the fount of, of clear, pure spiritual water. Come and drink deeply this morning. God also is, not only is a God who paints pictures for us that we might understand, but he's a God of provision. Um, this next section, the outline I've taken from uh, Jim Boyce, who was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian for many years before he passed away. But he had a, he had a wonderful uh, commentary on this passage. Um, and he talked about, uh, he, he talked about the, um, the history that is behind what Christ is saying. When Christ comes and says, I am the light of the world, He's saying something meaningful. He's saying something monumental to a Jewish people who are being told to remember back to God who has taken care of you. He stands up and says, I am the light of the world. At a time when the, the Jewish priests are lighting lamps that the people might remember God's goodness and faithfulness in the past. Exodus 13 says, uh, By day the Lord went ahead of them, the, the children of Israel, after they had left Egypt, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day. We see this God who is a God who provides for his people in the desert. He didn't just lead them in the desert to leave them there. He led them there to guide them, to nourish them. And he provides his presence, the, the pillar of fire at night that, uh, that was God's presence for them, and, and the pillar of smoke during the day was, was God's presence. He, he was there with them. They were not alone. Um, and so when Christ stands before the temple, when he stands there uh, with, the, with the, the candles that are lit, and when the priests are saying, remember back to your God whose presence was with your forefathers in the desert through the light of the flaming pillar, Christ stands and says, I am the light of the world. He's saying to them, God's presence is with you again through me. Don't just remember how good he was in the past that he was with your forefathers. He is with you now because I am the light of the world. God's presence. Christ also talked about God's protection. Because when the children were wandering in the desert, the, the flaming pillar that would light up their night was also there for protection, to keep far away the wild animals. Um, perhaps two million people were there in the desert that God was caring for. Um, during the day, the temperatures would have reached anywhere between 140 to 150 degrees, and at night they can drop down into freezing. So the pillar of fire not only provided light, but it provided warmth 
and protection. The pillar of smoke during the day, some believe, would actually rise up and spread out over the nation to provide relief from the sun that is baking down on them. So God provided protection for his children then. Christ now stands and says, this same protection is offered for you. Not to protect you from the sun that is beating down, but to protect you from a righteous father's wrath. Christ Jesus was that barrier between a sinful people and a righteous God who had to punish sin. The blood of Jesus covers us like that cloud would spread out over the children of Israel. But God also provided leading for his children. They're told that when the, when the children of Israel saw that the pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire would move, that was God telling them, it was time for you to move as well. They would pack up and they would move. Whether it was for a day or a month or for a year, when the pillar moved, they moved. Christ Jesus is saying to them, God's leading is here with you again. God's leading is here with you again, and it is through me, Jesus Christ. So when Christ Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world, it means far more to them than I think it does us. They would have understood it. They didn't believe it or like it, but in the context of being poured back to the children of Israel wandering in the desert, he's making a bold and audacious claim. He's saying, the God who provided protection and his presence and his leading is here with you now, and I am, I am God. I am that for you. I think oftentimes, uh, just like with the children of Israel, there's danger in um, either getting ahead of God or too far behind God. Uh, we can get ahead of God because we think we know best. We make plans. We say, God, I think we ought to go in this direction. Let's go. And we can look around after a little while and say, where are you, Lord? Other times where he has told us to go and to do, and we, we lag behind because we don't want to. So where are you this morning, this afternoon? Are you, are you ahead of God, believing that you know best, believing that you have the right direction to set out? Or are you lagging behind, unwilling to be obedient, unwilling to go in the direction that he's told you to go? We need God's leading. We need his presence. We need his protection. And those things today are offered through Jesus Christ. History is full of people who, do, who have done just that, who have left God behind, who have forgotten about him, uh, who have, in essence, imposed upon themselves a time of, of darkness. Um, it's amazing that as they celebrate this feast, as, as Jesus stands there and they're celebrating this feast where they're encouraged to remember God's faithfulness, that that God's light, that God's presence is standing there in front of them. And they don't see it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they've, in essence, substituted tradition for worship. They've substituted other things for God's presence. And I think we are in danger often of doing the same things today. We can have our own sense of self-imposed darkness. Because nowhere in Scripture are we told that God told the Jews to light the candelabra that would light up the city during this festival? Nowhere did he tell them to pour out the water on the side of the altar. They had made these traditions the things that were most important to them. They made these things what that festival was about and not remembering God's presence. And I think we can do the same thing today. We can leave God behind. We can say, well, we're enlightened now, right? 
We know better. We're, we're scientifically advanced. We're, uh, we're able to take care of ourselves, God. And there was a time where others thought that as well, the, a time of the Enlightenment. One of my seminary professors actually called it the time of endarkenment, where man began to think so highly of himself, so highly of his own knowledge and intellect that he said, we don't need God anymore. In fact, Immanuel Kant said, the Enlightenment was mankind's coming of age, the emancipation of the human consciousness from an immature state of ignorance and error. Do we live in that time again, perhaps, in different ways? That we think that we've progressed so far that we don't need God. We don't need Christ in our lives. And it, maybe we don't um, day-to-day say that, but do our lives reflect that? Do our lives reflect in any way that we've said to God, God, I'm going this way. I know where I'm going. I know what's best for me. Come on and follow me along. We're telling God, I don't need you anymore. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm supposed to do. And we find ourselves in perhaps a time of self-imposed endarkenment. And eventually the Lord calls us back. He draws us graciously back in and reminds us, you're not God. You don't know where you're going. Your mind is still darkened in many ways. You need the light of Scripture. You need the light of Christ in your life. The Jews at that time loved to look back and remember God, the God of their ancestors. But they were ignoring the bread of life that stood there before them, the the water of life, the light of the world that shone right there in their city. They were more concerned about the candelabras and the light they had lit than the light that God had provided for them. God's not only a God who gives us pictures, uh, he also provides uh, protection for us, but he's also a physician. Real quickly, I want to look at uh, two things and then we're, then we're finished. Uh, John 8 and John 9 provide a wonderful bookend to our, our, um, our saying of Christ here. Um, I don't know if you've ever, uh, in, in a field or in your backyard, perhaps in your backyard, you've left a, a piece of plywood that has fallen over or there's a, a large stump or a large rock. And when you go to roll that stump away or, or move the piece of plywood, what's under there? Decaying, rotting grass. You see animals, bugs begin to scurry away. And the amazing thing about that is, is that the light that shines down into the dark place that was covered causes those creatures to scurry away. But the longer that you leave that ground uncovered, the more those seeds begin to take root and life begins to spring up again. And there's a sense where John 8 and John 9 provide that bookend. In John 8, we see with the woman caught in adultery, the the, the leaders of the Jewish people bring a, a woman caught in the act of adultery. They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to make him stumble. Um, and Jesus shines the light of his righteousness on them. He says, whoever among you is without sin, cast the first stone. And they scurry away as his light is shined into their lives. Like when you take that board or that log up and the, the creatures scurry away. So the light of Jesus can be a dangerous thing, can be a painful thing, it can hurt, but it can also be something that heals. We see in John 9, as Jesus seeks out a man who is blind, and again the Pharisees seek to try and undo him, they they try and make it into a theological discussion, the disciples are involved in this, who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents, that he would be born this way? 
And Jesus doesn't want it to be a theological discussion. He wants to deal with their hearts. He shines his righteous truth in their lives again, but in a loving way. And he shines it into the life of this man who had never seen light. And he heals this man. And so we see the light of Jesus Christ as, yes, a a painful thing, but also a healing thing. It's interesting that the blind man didn't seek Christ, that Christ went to him and healed him. Christ may be seeking you this day for the first time. He may be saying, you have lived in darkness long enough. It is time to come into the light. I come and offer you eternal life. Confess your sins and accept me as Christ, as Lord and Savior. And let the light of Jesus Christ begin to bring new life out of the darkness that is your life. Perhaps you've lived with the light of Jesus for a long time now, and yet you find ways to shield it, to push it out, to cup your eyes so that you aren't uh, blinded by that light anymore. We don't like the light because it hurts, right? We don't like him to expose our sin. We don't want it to shine everywhere in our lives, just certain places, places that are manageable, places we're willing to give up. And yet Christ says, no, the light of my righteousness, the light of truth, needs to shine into every aspect of your world. And yes, it will be painful at first. But over, over time, it will bring life and light. And others will see that light as well. So does Christ pursue you this day? The Bible tells us yes. No matter who you are this afternoon, whether you don't know Jesus Christ or you've known him for 40 years, he seeks you today. The same light that Jesus Christ talked about in John chapter 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. He says that to you today. I am the light of the world. And he seeks you today to bring light into the dark places of your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, remind us that we live in darkness so often. We're born in darkness We love the darkness, and we like to return to it. You've called us out of it. You've shown the light of your righteousness in our lives, Father. I pray that you would continue to shine that light, to show us the areas of our lives that are are dark and sinful places. Root those things out. Bring life and newness into our lives. We pray, Father, today that we would then be mirrors of your goodness, that we would shine the light of Jesus through our lives, through our words, into those around us. Bless our day today, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.